Oh, that's a beautiful sight. All those kids running out. I love it. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I want you to know just a tiny bit about me. I'm an ordained covenant pastor, and for 18 years, I was a pastor at Pasadena Covenant Church, not too far from here. And then most recently, I was the interim lead pastor at Village Covenant Church in Azusa, if you're connected to any of those sister covenant churches. I also, as Melody mentioned, I also am the chair of the Ministerial Association for our Pacific Southwest Conference. And so that allows me to work with the conference team and to care for the, I think it's about 350 credentialed clergy in our conference alone. And so it's a great joy to work with so many different pastors. And, and that just naturally connects me to you. I, just, I care about the story of pastors in all of their local congregations. So I care about this story here at CME as well. So thank you for the invitation to be here. Another just personal note is that my daughter is also a young covenant pastor, and she will be ordained in the denomination this June. So that's a celebration in our family as well. So today we are going to read a scripture that's fairly complicated and dense and also so very important because it's a story about the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul has written a letter to the people in one of the first churches, first Christian churches in the city of Corinth who needed help to believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead. He really was alive again. They didn't think that was possible. And Jesus was no longer on earth, and so it was even harder for people to hold that in their understanding. And so Paul needed to give them reasons to believe something that seemed completely disorienting and very confusing. The news was a story that really made no sense to any of the people who were trying to take that in. And so Paul's task is an extreme example of maybe something that you've experienced, I certainly have as well, when something comes across your path, something or someone comes across your path, and it's very disorienting, maybe just for a second or maybe longer. Have you have ever had that experience of going somewhere and suddenly you see someone and you know you should know who they are. But right in that moment, you don't. And it's usually because that person isn't in the usual place that you know them, right? And so sometimes it takes quite a while, and sometimes your brain works pretty fast, and you're like, oh, yeah, I get who that person is and why they're here. But it doesn't always happen right away. Many years ago, I was traveling in Sweden with my parents and with my sister. My parents were Swedish, and their parents immigrated to the United States from Sweden. And so it was a very sacred gift to encounter with my parents the country of their heritage for the very first time, and my heritage as well, obviously. And so we explored many places in Sweden. It was such a sweet and wonderful trip. And one day we were in a museum in Stockholm and just wandering through the various parts of the museum into the various rooms. 
and we were walking through one particular room, and all of a sudden, on the other side of the room, someone yelled out, Lori! And, and I did, for a split second, I didn't even respond because of the three people in Sweden that I know were standing right next to me. But of course, because it was my name, can't help but turn, and so I did. And I looked over and there were these two sweet, smiling faces looking right at me. I'm like, oh, they really were talking to me. But I, for a second, I just couldn't even place them at all. And so it was that exact experience of, wow, look at them, they're smiling right at me, and I, I do know I should know their faces. And so it took probably just, it felt like a year, but it probably just took a few seconds, honestly. And then I thought, oh my goodness, yes, they are members of Pasadena Covenant Church, Rusty and Marty Bowman, who were also traveling in Sweden right at that time. So what are the odds that we would all be in the same room, in the same museum, right in that same half hour period of time in history? That's just a simple moment of a bit of disorientation. Paul's task is so much more complicated. And so before we read a portion of 1 Corinthians, here's what we know. We know that the first disciples and followers of Jesus were absolutely stunned, shocked, amazed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Even though Jesus told them this would happen, and even though they were devout Jews, the chosen people of God, they were not prepared for this at all. And here's why. The devout Jews who trusted in God and were waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, they did believe in a coming Messiah, but they had absolutely no expectation that the Messiah would ever be killed and then raised from the dead into a new resurrection body. They did believe in a final resurrection at the end of time when everyone would be raised to new life. Yet no one, not even the Jews, believed that God would raise one person from the dead in the middle of human history even if that person was the Messiah. So the Jews believed that when the new heaven and new earth were created, then God would raise everyone, including a Messiah, to new resurrection life. Now a subset of the Jews who were part of that new church in the city of Corinth, that would have been their understanding. And Paul's writing to them. Paul's also going to be writing to a smaller group of Jews in that new church who, did not, who denied any resurrection from the dead at all. They're typically called the Sadducees. They did not believe that there would be anything that would happen after this life. And then, of course, in that city, there were Gentiles from pagan backgrounds and they're influenced by the Greek worldview, who, and they may have believed in the immortality of the soul, and yet that immortality to them, to Greek-thinking individuals, that would mean getting rid of the body after death, because a body was a lower form of life. And so the hope for the Greeks was finally to escape anything like a human body and live just in a non-physical world of the soul. So if we pause for a second and we're about to read the scripture, I think we can recognize that in our world now, 
There are people who experience many of these same sorts of questions and doubts. Even many Christians today, I think, have a strong belief in Jesus and in life after death, but may not recognize the significance of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead into a redeemed, transformed, spiritual body. Apparently, bodily existence and all of the creation is very important to God, who is the creator. So in this part of the letter that we're going to read, the Apostle Paul is writing to respond to all of these doubts, all of these questions. And so I invite you now to listen, as, and you can watch along on the screen as I read through. I'm not going to read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. It's really long. But I'm going to read the sections that will help us follow the flow. Paul is now writing to help everyone in those various categories understand that absolutely yes, Jesus was raised from the dead into a resurrection body. Here we go. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to John, James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And now Paul's going to talk to those Sadducees who did not believe in life after death at all. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. And now he's going to talk about first fruits, that Jesus raised in his new resurrection body means a part of the new heaven and the new earth have already arrived. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And now, Paul's going to try to help people understand this business of resurrection from things that happen in nature. A seed planted in the ground dies, and then it comes to new life. And this is God's pattern, is what Paul's trying to help them with. Death to resurrection. And he's addressing the skeptics. But someone will say... 
How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? That's the question. Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you don't sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a physical body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, right before his last statement, after the great news of Jesus' resurrection, this is what we're going to hear. Not about someday going to live with Jesus somewhere else, but about our earthly lives now. It's very intriguing. This is the big conclusion from Paul. After celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, may you guide our minds and our hearts as we hear from you more about the resurrection of Jesus really means for our lives right now. On earth, may you shape and form us in new ways by your spirit. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Friends, my study of the letter of Paul has caused me to reflect on really simple, basic questions about this miraculous reality of Jesus being alive and well right now in the space called heaven, in his new resurrection body. And let me pose these questions for you, because I'm guessing that if you're similar to many other Christians, you may wonder something about these answers sometimes. So when you read the Bible and think about Jesus now, how do you picture him in your mind and in your heart? 
Do you have a visual image of Jesus as you pray? Do you imagine him with that resurrection body? Where is Jesus right now in that resurrection body? Where is the risen Lord? And if you answer heaven, good answer. Where? What is that space called heaven? What do you imagine Jesus is actually doing right now in his resurrection body, in that space called heaven? A while ago, I asked some people I know how they would answer that question. And they gave just very simple, um, just very beautiful answers. And maybe you identify with some of these. One person said, you know, heaven really doesn't seem like an actual place that I can imagine at least. But I do sometimes imagine an earthly setting with a meadow or a stream and some kind of simple chair there where Jesus is sitting. Someone else said, I don't have a visual picture of Jesus after his resurrection at all. His new spiritual body just seems way beyond what I can imagine. It seems too mysterious. I have more pictures in my mind of Jesus before his death and resurrection. And then someone else said, you know, I see a very tender, smiling Jesus with arms extended wide, embracing all of us. But this has not always been my picture of Jesus. I needed to grow through some painful childhood abuse experiences and process those in order to be able to welcome Jesus as someone safe in my imagination. Perhaps you have thought some of these things, or maybe you have a very different response when you think about who Jesus might be. Jesus' main message in his life, death, and resurrection was this. The kingdom of God has come in me. The kingdom of God is here now, already here. Many people, as many of you may know, especially the outcast sinners and the poor, were really drawn to Jesus and to his message. And at the same time, wildly, in his teachings and healings and actions, Jesus was perceived as a threat to those who were in power, both in political power and also religious power. And that's the reality that led to him being crucified on a Roman cross on Good Friday. God vindicated Jesus and raised him from the dead in bodily form. And he was raised into that new, imperishable, immortal, spiritual body that we read about. Jesus was the first fruits of the promised new heaven and new earth. So some of the final expressions of the kingdom of God began at the resurrection of Jesus the new heaven and the new earth have already planted roots in our world and in human history. And notice this. Maybe you have thought about this before, but let's, let's think completely about what happened at the resurrection. Jesus did not die on the cross in his human body and then move on to a spiritual immortal form which was totally separated from his mortal life on earth. Quite the contrary. Jesus' human body was laid in the tomb. On the third day, his crucified body was no longer in that tomb. 
somehow his resurrection body somehow used up, maybe, or included his physical crucified body. That new resurrection body absolutely included all of his human body, his crucified body. The original body was in some mysterious way incorporated into the miraculous, imperishable, immortal, new spiritual body with capacity to appear and disappear and who knows what else. And yet, Jesus was clearly recognizable as the same person. His followers encountered him, they watched him eat, they heard him speak, they touched him with their hands, and finally he disappeared into heaven, into God's realm, in his new resurrection body. And so, because of Jesus' story, we can draw some wild conclusions. When the kingdom of God comes, which it did, beginning with Jesus, God takes the things of this earth and life, the physical creation and the things we have done and been, and incorporates them, includes them, completes and redeems them, transforms them amazingly into new kingdom expressions, no doubt in ways that we don't even fully understand. The intriguing news in all of this is that the new things in God's kingdom and in the new heaven and the new earth need not be completely separated from the old. Sometimes I think we as Christians believe that eventually all that has been will be destroyed and gone and then something completely new will be created. Instead, the scriptures, when we read them carefully, seem to say that what we have been and done as we have offered our lives to God, empowered by the Spirit, all of this may be gathered up into the new heaven and the new earth in some way, following the pattern of Jesus and his body and his resurrection. Wonderfully or hauntingly, there may be more continuity between this life and the life to come than we had previously imagined. One of the most well-respected biblical scholars right now, N.T. Wright, notes this. says a beautiful thing. The point of the resurrection, as Paul has been arguing throughout this letter to the Corinthians, is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to new life. So what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. It applies to the various vocations to which God's people are called. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, Caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Precisely because creation is the work of God's love to begin with, redemption's not something alien to the creator, 
but rather something he will undertake with delight and glad self-giving. Redemption doesn't mean scrapping what's there and starting again with a clean slate, but rather liberating what has come to be enslaved. Often we as Christians in many different churches and denominations may tend to think more about this broken, sinful world coming to an end altogether and about all of God's people then going to a new, fresh, eternal life in heaven with God somewhere else. And obviously the very core of that is true and right that eventually there will be new, eternal life with God and we don't know exactly what that means. And yet, the New Testament is actually telling us more that's even better news to me. The scriptures are telling us that Jesus' resurrection shows us our future. God will create the new heaven and the new earth out of the old and important parts of what we have been and done will be integrated into the new heaven and the new earth that God will be fashioning and living in with us. In the scriptures we read that at the end of time, God comes from the space called heaven to the new earth to live with us. God will make his home with us is what Revelation 21 tells us. And so what does this really mean for all of us? It means that friends, it all matters. Our serving, our vocations, our experiences, our stories in this life matter. The sacred and beautiful moments, the painful and dark empty seasons, what we face, how we give the best of ourselves to whatever circumstances, matters. And it matters not just as a way to train and form our hearts, our minds, our souls, so that someday we are ready for heaven somewhere else. Jesus, in his resurrection, has demonstrated that what happens in this life, in our bodies, in some mysterious way, will last into and actually contribute to God's new creation, already begun, yet to be fully revealed. As a pastor, I'm so well aware of the many painful, tender realities that are held always in any church family. And so together here, as see me covenant, we can say, even in the darkness, even in the losses in life, your story matters. You and your story are being gathered up into the kingdom of God's story, which is already underway yet to be fully revealed. And so, as you wake up each morning in a discouraging time of your life, seeking energy and endurance for one more day to care well for yourself, for a child, for a friend, for a parent, for a spouse, your story matters. Or as you continue to trust God rather than walk away when God seems absolutely silent or distant, even absent, your story matters. And as you do the right thing when you know it will cost you, might cost you safety, might cost you comfort, your story matters. 
And as you seek to follow Jesus, to set aside your own preferences, your own interests, to seek the best interests of those around you. Oh, that story matters. And as you offer who you are, as genuinely, as generously as you can, offer your gifts, your abilities, your story matters. You matter. Your life matters and it will last into the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth in ways that probably go way beyond our expectations. And a second closely related implication, very briefly, is this. Jesus' bodily resurrection clearly reveals the mission Jesus has given to his whole church, right? Because Jesus has ushered in the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth already, therefore Jesus is at work by the Spirit, bringing this to completion now. It is so important for us to remember that Jesus currently is in authority in heaven and on earth. Of course, sin, evil, and death still demonstrate great power on earth, but we're called to live the reality that Jesus already in his resurrection, has begun his authority. And so our mission is both telling this good news and being the good news of Jesus in concrete actions, demonstrating just very practical help, healing, and hope. We are Jesus' body on this earth now, together. What we do now contributes to the new heaven and the new earth, already underway, yet to be fully revealed. And so a great question for you, my friends, as Simi Covenant is, how is God inviting Simi Covenant to contribute right now to the new heaven and the new earth already underway, yet to be fully revealed? I want to close with one final quote from N.T. Wright which is just a beautiful, beautiful invitation to us as we say yes to Jesus, yes to this life that we share now. Here it is. What we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Spirit, is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, once more, that final statement. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. And so, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a child to read or to walk, Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, 
every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up a church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is never wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. Amen? Amen. Friends, will you join me in prayer? Loving God, we are humbled. We are grateful for this gift of this world and our lives, our bodies, and our stories. We praise you as the creator and the redeemer of all things, of all people. Thank you for the hope of the new heaven and the new earth in which we will live fully and freely in relationship with you and one another. It is an amazing privilege to be called to give the best of ourselves in helping to build for your kingdom right now in our lives. And I pray for this church family that you would continue to guide them by your spirit, empower them to love and serve their families, their neighbors, their friends in all sorts of ways. May your amazing, limitless love, your transforming and healing grace surround us, fill us this day and throughout our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Friends, it's such a gift to come to this table. We all come at the invitation of Jesus. Jesus is the host at this table. And we are invited simply to open our hands, to open our hearts, and to say yes to the gift of Jesus, his love, and his grace. When we celebrate this sacrament, we're not celebrating the strength and the seriousness of our faith, although I hope that matters to us, but what we're really celebrating is the strength of God's love for us. That's what this is about. And so Jesus, so beautifully, with his disciples and then passing it on to us, says, in these ordinary, everyday sorts of elements, bread and something to drink, the cup, in these ordinary elements, I am going to pour out my extraordinary self and grace. You do just hold the ordinary, and I'm going to make it extraordinary. And that's the beauty of what we celebrate in communion. 
And so, my friends, come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you're righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of his mercy and his help. And so come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and to pray for his spirit. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, we come simply, we come honestly before you. We bring our real selves, we bring our whole selves, trusting that what you've shown us is true, that you are very comfortable in your world, you're very comfortable with us, your children. And we're trusting you to welcome us, to love us and heal us, to rescue and redeem us so that we can become the people you've called us to be. For your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your grace and love, and for your relentless determination to save us, we offer our most humble gratitude, our worship, and our love in return. We pray together in your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. I invite you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus as they're delivered to us by the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which I give to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to invite the servers now to come and prepare to pass these gifts to one another. And I invite you, as the plates are passed, to take a portion and hold it until everyone's been served and then we will eat and drink together.
My friends, this is the body of Christ given in great love for every one of us. Let's eat together. This is the blood of Jesus given in his amazing love for all of us. Let's drink together. Friends, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, let us live in him. Amen.